Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to uh, John chapter 6. We're going to close out this chapter. We've been spending a lot of time in the Gospel of John, and I think in the next three years or so, we'll be done this, this puppy. So um, we're just continuing to work, but we are taking a, a rather large section of John. We'll start in verse 52, and we'll close out chapter 6 this morning. I'm calling my sermon, Eat This Sermon. Um, really, it's a stolen title. Eugene Peterson wrote a book uh, a few years back called Eat This Book, and he wrote the book about feeding on the Word of God. And the fact that when we feed on the word of God, it actually, it satisfies. We find God there and he satisfies our hunger. My hope is that this sermon will help you feed on what you will, what you will find to be rather difficult words of Jesus this morning. There, uh, and that you would feed on them and be satisfied. Um, there are a number of, of, of things that Jesus says in the, uh, the New Testament, in the Gospels, that are considered the hard sayings of Jesus. And this is, this is right up there. This is always on the list, part of the passage we will look at this morning. So before we read it, why don't I just break it down for you in the three kind of sections we'll look at this morning and we'll, we'll dive right in. Firstly, um, there's an imperative in this text that you believe in Jesus. It's really clear. Well, it's actually not. It's really clear once we work on it for a little bit. He's talking uh, kind of metaphorically and the crowd are confused but what he's ultimately saying to them is believe in Jesus. Secondly, there's an imperative to persevere with Jesus. Like I said, there's a hard saying here. And, and, and when there's something that Jesus says that strikes us as odd, strikes us as difficult, strikes us as a real challenge, or even offends us, we oftentimes at that point want to kind of remove ourselves, step away. But the imperative is persevere in that moment persevere with Jesus and thirdly praise Jesus I think you will find you will discover in this text that there is reason to praise Jesus so why don't we pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get to work God I thank you for your word difficult passages and all I thank you for your church that you built it church is made up of people Lord and so here we are we are the church. We are one church. And God, I thank you for Central. God, I pray that we would be a people who come to know you more and more and more. For some of us, it's just starting to get to know you. But Lord, I pray we would take a step towards you today. For some of us, Lord, it has been a long, long road. Lord, I pray that we would continue to, that we would not stifle, that we would not stop, that we would not begin to turn, but Lord, that we would continue to step towards you. So I pray that your word, uh, your word from the Bible would sink down deep into our hearts. You would impress it upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, you were brilliantly taught. I wasn't preaching, so I can say that. You were brilliantly taught last week about Jesus as the bread of life. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, he told this crowd that were following him around the Galilean hillside. And when he said that he was the bread of life, he meant that he satisfies the deepest spiritual longings in your heart. 
Sometimes we don't recognize that we have these longings because we have such pleasures, we have such comforts around us, but there are dark moments, there are times, there are seasons when, yes, there are longings in our hearts that are not satisfied, these spiritual longings, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of the life, and I actually satisfy those, like nothing else can. And this week, we'll see him take his statement about being the bread of life a step further. A step further meaning it's starting to make some people uncomfortable that Jesus is claiming that he satisfies people's spiritual desires and needs and longings, and he doesn't shy away from it. And this is a really helpful, this is really helpful for us to hear as I preach to you this morning. We want to follow in Jesus' method here. People are starting to get uncomfortable in the crowd, and Jesus doesn't shrink back and say, let me tell it to you a softer way. Let me, let me say it to you in a really kind of neat way that, that doesn't sound as dis, displeasing. No, Jesus actually takes it a step further and says, I can be more clear and I can make you more uncomfortable. And we seem to see that Jesus does this from time to time. Therefore, we have these hard sayings because Jesus is aiming to show us what it truly means to follow Jesus, to know him, to be his disciple. So let me start in verse 52. It'll come on the screen. Um, We'll just take this first bit. The Jews then, this is the crowd that had been following Jesus, disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, let me just back up because the, the, the passage ended last week where Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread himself as the bread of life, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Sounds odd. So we pick it up and what, what's happening? Well, the people who just heard this are disputing among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Fair enough. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Again, he takes it a step further, does he not? Yeah, I'm the bread of life and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Wow, okay. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Now what he's referring to there is the exodus out of Egypt, these people who were brought out of slavery and God provided manna from heaven, literally bread from heaven for them to eat each day. And that was miraculous. And that was amazing. But Jesus is saying, this bread, this is the bread that came down from heaven. And it's not like the bread the fathers ate, your ancestors ate and died. It was a miracle, yeah, but they still died. It was still just physical food. But whoever feeds on this bread, The bread that Jesus offers will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now that little bit is important for context and who the crowd is. He's actually teaching in a Jewish synagogue this stuff. And we're going to get into it a bit more in a bit. But firstly, I want us to see what Jesus is saying here. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. Jesus takes his statement about being the bread of life a step further by saying that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will not be alive spiritually or be raised to life eternally. I want to tell you a story. It's a story from Scripture. It's found in two places. First Chronicles 11 and 2 Samuel 23. Same story. It's about David, uh, King David, 
and his mighty men. He had 30 what were called mighty men, and then he had another three uh, kind of the, the captains of this kind of exceptional uh, military force of David's. There were the mighty men who were the upper echelon, and then there were three captains of those mighty men. These were the mightiest of mighty men. Just picture myself and then two others, and you get it, right? Um, but listen, so we'll pick it up. So what's happening here is, uh, yeah, I should start to work out. Um, what's happening in this context is that um, they're fighting a war against the Philistines, and David and his army have just kind of um, taken Jerusalem, but the Philistines now have their garrison, have, they're stationed in Bethlehem, and that's where David was from. King David was from there. So I pick it up in 1 Chronicles 11. Three of the 30 chief men, these were the mightiest of mighty men David had in his military, went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, and when, uh, when the army of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So these three mighty men, his best captains, his strongest fighters, they come and they're by him. And David's really just going, man, what I'd give for a drink from the old well from where I'm from. Right? He's just kind of throwing that out, you know? Ah, I'd love that. Well, that same... That, um, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then, right then, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. So they overhear him just kind of longingly say, oh, what I'd give for a drink of water from that well. That's where I grew up. It's so nostalgic. These three guys just leave. <laughs> they leave where David is and they break through where the Philistine army are stationed in Bethlehem. They just break in and they get to the well and they draw water and they bolt out and they come back and they bring it. And they go, here you go. But David, when they got back with it, would not drink it. After all of that, he poured it out to the Lord, it says, and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. They, therefore, he would not drink it. David didn't want to be seen to profit from their readiness to put their lives on the line for him. So he poured out the water on the ground. It's interesting that David was talking about drinking blood here. Because they followed um, the Levitical law. And here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 17. Any one of the people of Israel or of the, or the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting and any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For This is the reason why. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its life is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, this is God to Israel in Leviticus 17, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And so the, probably one of the trickiest jobs was to be a Jewish butcher. Because <laughs> like every drop of blood needed to be um, drained from all meat that they consumed. 
So because of this, the blood of animals was completely drained before being eaten. And so David would be referring to intentionally all of that here. To drink the water retrieved by his mighty men would be the equivalent of drinking blood. And he wouldn't do it. They put their lives in their hands, their very lives, their blood in his hands. into his hands for doing this thing and he wasn't going to do it. It wasn't worth it. They shouldn't have done that and he would not do it. So what do we make of Jesus speaking of eating his flesh and drinking his blood? David refused to drink the blood of his men and profit from them risking their lives. But here's what's so amazing about Jesus. Jesus not only put his life on the line, his lifeblood, he gave his life. He actually lost his life. He didn't just risk it, he gave it, and he lost his life. And everyone who believes in that life that he gave profits from his death. David's saying, far be it from me to profit from their blood. Jesus comes, lays his life down, and says, profit from my blood. I lay my life down so that you can have life. For Jesus, then, just to summarize... Look, we get to have our thirst quenched by his death. For Jesus, eating means believing. Drinking means believing. He promises eternal life to those who believe in him. Believe what? Well, believe that his death, the breaking of his body and spilling of his blood, pays in full the penalty of our sin and that his perfect righteousness is freely given to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. His death provides our life. David says, far be it from me to, that they would take their lives for my life. But Jesus comes along and lays his life down and says, I lay it down so you can have life. Believing this is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, by believing in what was accomplished by his death. This is why we take communion together. It's a reminder of the very means of our salvation, believing in Jesus, believing the gospel, believing that his body was broken and his blood shed so that our sins could be forgiven, satisfied, and made alive together with Christ. Believe in Jesus. Believe in what he did for you. He gave his body and his blood so that you could have life. Let's move on to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, all this talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Meaning, are you offended that I'm talking about you receiving my flesh and blood? For all time past, eternity past, I was seated with the Father in heaven. Should it surprise you then that my life can give, my death can give you life? Do you take offense at this? Is it, see, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus said. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is repeated from an earlier conversation earlier in John 6. This leads us to the second point about persevering with Jesus. This was a hard saying, this saying about eating 
his flesh and drinking his blood, it was really hard for his hearers in this Jewish synagogue to understand when they lived by that Levitical law. They drain all blood, and where there is blood, they cover it with dirt. It's just, right, it's removed from them. If you touched blood, you were ceremonially unclean for a period of time. Like, they just were apart from it. And now he comes along and tells them to drink his blood. It's highly offensive. It's a hard saying. And this hard saying actually has nothing to do with hard to understand. Like, we don't get it. It's a hard saying in that they, they said it's hard to tolerate. What you just said is hard for us to tolerate. This is, what you just said is harsh. We get it. They thought they got it. They were thinking very literally. He was talking very spiritually. But it's hard for us to tolerate what you just said. And it's hard for us, in our context, to grasp, those of us who have rare stakes from time to time, it's hard for us to grasp how offensive Jesus' words were about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and how offensive they would have been to his Jewish hearers. Because it was hard for them to tolerate. A number of years ago, I uh, did something you know you do with your friends when you're young. We got in a car, filled a car, and went to the nearest Krispy Kreme donuts, which was you know, in the States and like an hour away. I think it was like Burlington at the time was the closest Krispy Kreme donuts. So off we went across the border to there and we each got like, you know, make it worth your while, got a dozen donuts. And we were sitting around, had a dozen donuts each, you know, bring them back and have them for a couple of days. And I don't know if I proposed this or somebody else did, but the proposal was made that I should try and eat all 12 in five minutes. And... Uh, and they were actually putting a money, money on the table. Like they were like, we'll give you, I think it was like 20 some dollars US, which, you know, currency right now, it's like 150 bucks. So <laughs> I was like, I ha I'm gonna do this, right? I, it's on. So open up that box of donuts. I was gonna, you know, you know, have them throughout the week, but here we go. I'm gonna try and eat all 12 donuts in one five minute period. And off we went. The timer was started. The money was on the table. I started eating Krispy Kreme donuts. I ate six donuts in two and a half minutes. Do the math. I was like, I was on pace, right? Just had to keep up that pace. Just keep going. I, I took the seventh donut and started to put it to my mouth. And I was like, just, I just could not do it. Just putting that seventh donut to my mouth and started to smell the sweetness of the donut. I, just, I could not eat another sweet bite. So strange, right? Because you start with your first donut, even second donut, some of you third donut, right? Like, all right, this is delicious, right? But, but there comes a time when it's been so sweet and yet it's the same thing. But one comes along and you just get a, right? You get a scent of it and you're like, whoa, I can't tolerate it. I can't do it. What seems so sweet just a minute and a half earlier was now just too much. This is very much how the Christian life often works. And this is why I'm asking you to persevere with Jesus because it's often really sweet. Like there are seasons, especially when you start following Jesus, where you're like, you start to get it and you go, wait a minute. All I do is, is say to Jesus, I need you. I, like I, we tell him what we, the sin we've done, the wrongdoings we've done in our lives, and he'll forgive us. And we can have life in him for eternity. He takes our junk and he, he bore it on a cross so we can just live free. That's amazing. We're amazed by Jesus. This is sweet. This is amazing. And then we start to read the Bible and we come across verses that says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we go, ah, oh, like 
Jesus is so good. And we read more verses that are like, we love because he first loved us. And we go, amen, he loves us so much. And we're just walking with Jesus. And then all of a sudden we start to read other verses. All of a sudden we start to walk the Christian life and it's starting to get grindy. It's starting to feel, and we, we start to put the same faith to our nostrils, but we get a scent of it and go, oh. Like Luke chapter 14. It's also in Matthew chapter 10. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and brothers and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, doesn't even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you read something like that. Now, this is a bit shocking to us and we'll say this is hard to tolerate. We'll say, well, you know, my brothers and sisters, yeah, okay, I can do that part. Uh, (laughs) But my mom my own life? This is hyperbole. We need to know that. Exaggeration for the sake of effect. You don't need to hate your mom to be a Christian. But you need to love Jesus more than anything else on the planet. And if you don't, you can't be his disciple. That's still a hard saying. You don't have to hate mom. You don't have to hate yourself. But you have to lay everything down and see Jesus as the treasure. Will you love Jesus more than anyone or anything? It's a hard saying. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, right? That was in the law. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus comes along and says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Once again, this is hyperbole. This is exaggeration for the sake of effect. Some Christians in church history actually gouged out their eyes and cut off their hands. That wasn't the point. They probably learned that a few years later. Oh, that was hyperbole. Shoot. Shoot. (laughs) Ah, But Jesus is nonetheless saying a hard, hard thing. Sex and sexual desires are a good thing. But Jesus says to us that when it comes to expressing your sexuality in thought or deed outside of marriage, you're liable to be thrown into hell. In our sex-saturated culture, will I discipline myself to bounce my eyes and check my heart on this over and over again? This is a hard saying of Jesus. And I'll let you in. This is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus for me in my life. Because the temptation is there every day to just not bounce eyes off of someone, but to gaze. Not remain faithful, but to chase. Not to bounce my eyes, but to click. Will you have the discipline in the hard words of Jesus to bounce your eyes and check your heart over and over and over again?
It's a hard saying. Luke 14, verse 27 and 33, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Do you have a cross-bearing faith? Verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking about daily surrendering our lives into his hands, our plans and our dreams and our resources into his hands and keeping oneself nailed to the cross day in and day out, day out that Jesus is the treasure. There's nothing more supreme. There's nothing he cannot ask. And when I approach these hard sayings, I will bear my own cross for he calls me to do it. Suffering will come. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like the Jesus you know? Those things that I just said. Does that sound like the Jesus you know? Because Jesus actually does say hard things. Sometimes I'm amazed with people who seem to have a really, really close, audible, like, walk with the Lord where they pray and they hear God say things to them, very specific, and that just seems to be the regular pattern of their life. But what I, what I see happen, God does that miraculously, graciously sometimes. But what, what I find odd sometimes is that people who live that kind of life a lot of the time, Jesus never seems to say a hard word. Have you ever noticed that? There's just never a hard word. It's as if Jesus, every time Jesus speaks to them, it's a pat on the back. It's, you're doing great. Hey, you know, every word is just affirm, affirmation, affirmation, you like that's, right? And the, does the Jesus you know ever say a hard thing? Because if he doesn't, the Jesus you know may be a lot more like a pillow you sleep on than the Jesus who is ruling and reigning over all things as we speak. Here's what I mean by a pillow you sleep on. You ever sleep on that pillow that's full of lumps? You put your head down and it's like, ah, oh, it's like a lump. And then you move and there's just, there's like no softness there at all. It's like literally now you're just on the mattress because there's like lumps over here and you just keep moving the pillow and there's just lumps all over the place on your pillow. So what do you do? You grab your pillow, right? I'm not going to have a sore neck in the morning. You start pounding the lumps. This part I don't like. This part is hard. This part is, right, a lump. And so you pound it out until that pillow is smooth and cozy and you put it back and you rest. Ah, problem solved. I pounded out all the lumps. Everything hard about my pillow is now gone. If your faith with Jesus is more like a pillow where you pound out the hard things, well, what you're left with isn't the bread of life, but rather an extremely cheap substitute. Jesus says hard things. Some of you know that too well. Right now, there's just a hard thing that you know is the truth that Jesus is saying to you. Every fiber of your being wants to just pound out that lump and pretend it's not there and not change your life. The call is to persevere with the Jesus of the Bible, not the one of your imagination. Here's one of the reasons in our context that we find certain sayings of Jesus hard, I think. I want to talk about worldview for a second. Familiar with that? Everybody has a worldview. Everybody who's ever lived, everybody who ever will live, all of us, we all have a worldview, meaning 
What informs the way you look at the world? There's a lens by which you look at the world. That's your worldview. It's always through a particular lens. You see things a particular way. You might recognize this and you, all, you, you just seem to land on a particular place, on a particular issue because it's going through a filter that someone else's worldview isn't leading them to. And so you'd land on different places, on different issues. Your worldview is different than their worldview. Everybody has one. What is the lens by which you see and look at the world? Let's talk for a second about some, some recent Canadian um, studies. On average, Canadians spend almost two hours per day on social media. And on average, Canadians, well, actually not on average, millennials spend on average 110 hours a month online, almost a full-time job online, right? Average TV watching in Canada, 30 hours per week, almost a full-time job. It's four, four hours and 20 minutes a day, 120 hours a month. 26% of Canadians say they are always or almost always multitasking TV and internet. To my shame, I was doing this last night. Emily and I were watching a show and I got out my laptop. I'm like, I'm just going to review my notes and then you start to do some study, you know, whatever, and use some online resources and stuff. And there I am kind of watching a show, kind of just looking over some stuff. 26% of Canadians almost always do that. They're on their phone while they're watching TV. They kind of watch it, check a little bit of that. Something exciting happens, they watch that. Then they go back to their phone and they read this or they post something or they tweet or they, whatever. They see some trending topic and they follow it. That simultaneously do that. A recent study in Canada also revealed that on average, or average Bible reading, one in seven, that's 14% of Canadians, 14% of Canadian Christians, not Canadians, 14% of Canadian Christians, one in seven Canadian Christians reads the Bible at least once a week. That means 85% of us in this room didn't pick up the Bible this week. 85% of us. But you know what we did? Almost two hours a day on social media, spent 30 hours watching television last week, and we were on the internet, 25% of us, more than even Bible readers last week, were on the internet, well on our phones, well on our... Just multitasking everything the world has to tell us. But only one out of seven of us even open the word of God. Let me ask you, what kind of worldview does that inform? I'm not anti-TV. I love TV. <laughs> I'm not anti-internet. I'm not anti-social media. I'm not. I'm just asking the question, what kind of worldview does that create? When only one out of seven of us even opened the Bible last week, but we spent like a hundred hours on screens. And unless you're watching like Revival Hour on all of that, or I don't know, I don't know what's on. I don't actually get the Christian channels. Or, but anyways. So here's the thing. Issues of gender, issues like physician hasten death or the wrath of God or divorce or homosexuality or the exclusivity of Christ, we're 30 hours a week into television, 14 hours a week into social media, and only 14% of us in the room have gotten into the Bible once that same week. Is it any wonder that we find Jesus' words hard to tolerate on pressing issues of the day? Is it? Well, that seems harsh. That's not a loving God. Do we even know God? We're so sold on the cultural narrative because we're immersed in it. We don't actually even know why what God says is actually good. And we don't find any reason that we could ever find it better. 
we're convinced that it's not. We too, like the original hearers in this text, come across extremely hard sayings of Jesus. My question is, what do you do with it? And my plea with you is, please persevere with Jesus. Fall on your knees in prayer. Open your word and encounter Jesus there. This is personal for me, too. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians eleven three that I wish was not in the Bible. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Man, that sells in the culture, doesn't it? 90% of us right now have our backup just hearing the word of God spoken. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's a hard saying. That's hard to tolerate. Ephesians 5 picks up on that and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So what men are called to is sacrificial leadership. These are just two verses. It's a a narrative in the Bible. It's a story. Men bear ultimate responsibility in their homes, not men general over women general. No, husbands loving their wives, sacrificial headship, seeing their wife thrive in all of her gifting, seeing them thrive in their faith by nurturing it, working harder than anybody in the family to nurture faith, being ultimately responsible with the kids that point them to Jesus, point them to Jesus. I'm going to take, guys, come sit down. We're, I have two boys. I'm saying guys, but right, come, let's just open the Bible. I want to tell you about Jesus. Bearing the ultimate responsibility for that. Ultimately being judged for that. That sacrificial, headship, loving husbands doing that. Look, I wish that was not in the Bible because I'll tell you what, my wife is very assertive and I'm very passive. I'm quite content, left to my own devices to just, oh, you made the call on that? Great. Uh, you know, that's, that's awesome. I'm really glad that you have an opinion about that because I haven't even formed an opinion about that. Let's just roll with that. Okay, you were doing this today? Okay, good. Like, I'm glad because, right, she's assertive and she can do it and it's great and it's gifting and it's talent and it's the way she's wired and, we, and it works, right? But there's, I can take it to where it's sin and kick back and be passive and do no leadership at all. But the Bible tells me to do otherwise. What do you do with a hard saying like that? What do you do when you're watching TV, when there's social media, when all of the issues, oh, these kinds of things are at the forefront of our culture right now? It's saying something really different. If you want to know one of the ways that persecution might come for Christians in North America and is coming, have a stance that you're supposed to be the head of your home, men. Not to lord over anything, but to sacrificially work harder than anybody in the home at their spiritual well-being, protecting them, You'll get persecuted. And you may walk away from here today not even believing it's in the Bible. Or pounding out the lump in the pillow. Same with dependence on God and prayer. When I stepped into this role, one of the things that for, with fear and trembling is I looked at passages like Acts chapter 6 where it called, where the leaders said, you know, what we're given to, we're to be given to the word and to prayer. Given to it. It's good that there's all these other deacons and all these other ministers to do the work of ministry because we're to give ourselves to the word and to prayer. And here I stand. And this is a really convicting word because I have to be dependent on God in prayer in this role to pray for you. And to be honest, right, it's one of the struggles I have right now is I'm asking the question, God, am I dependent on you in prayer? Am I, 
Am I lifting up this church that I have the privilege of leading, of loving? Of, am I really, though, dependent in prayer for them? Because my days are really busy and my kids are really tiring. So getting up at 5.30 or whatever the window of time that it even seems to fit to be a dependent man in prayer in the role that I'm in, I'd love to pound that lump in my pillow out and just be like, you know what, God's got it. I don't need to pray that much. No. He says hard things. I am to be someone who gives myself wholly to lifting you up daily. That we would be a unified church. That people would come to know Christ through our church. That we would love like nobody else in Chilliwack loves. That we would lift the name of Jesus and we would never give ourselves to any other gospel. Every person who follows Jesus at one point or another will be offended by what Jesus says. He will challenge your sensibilities if he has not already, and I'm sure he already has. He will say to you that what you're doing is wrong and needs to change. That will happen. And it will either be his way or yours. And we see disciples walk from him in this text. We need to remember that his ways are good and that they're better. We, we think we know best, but forks in the road come where our way and the way of Jesus veer in totally different directions. And we need to remember that he is good, that his ways are best, and that our unbiblical, self-gratifying, culturally informed worldviews must be reshaped by his good and perfect will and word. Verse 66, after this, after the hard saying, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, many of the early disciples following Jesus weren't genuine disciples, and they turned back from following him. Maybe they were, they'd been following him for the hope that he'd, he'd multiply more food like he did at the beginning of chapter 6. He'd provide more physical food or healing or signs, and they were hanging out for that, but they had not truly encountered Jesus as the bread of life. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth, and I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was, a pro, there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and said, my, if that's what he got for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you. And took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener, he was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Both men gave gifts to the king. They had drastically different motivations. We see earlier in chapter 6, Jesus says, you're here because you think I'll give you more food, more bread and fish. 
You're here and you're demanding more signs. That's why you're here. You're here for, right? You're not here to know me. You're here to get from me. As long as Jesus gives us what we're after, as long as Jesus fits into our worldview, as long as Jesus doesn't offend us, we'll come to church. We'll even give and serve and worship. But then the cracks in our motivations begin to show when his teaching grinds us, costs us, and becomes difficult to follow. Whether or not our lives revolve around serving the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of our own making, brothers and sisters, persevere with Jesus. You may not see it all clearly now, but he is more merciful and loving towards you than you know. See, Jesus' hearers in this text couldn't understand why he wouldn't multiply more bread and fish, and they couldn't understand why he wouldn't perform more signs, and they couldn't understand why he would tell them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But what they didn't realize was that far from being harsh and offensive, his words and actions towards them were far more wonderful than they knew. They were the words of eternal life. They couldn't tolerate what he was saying, and yet it was more wonderful than they could have imagined. Could it be that the hard sayings of Jesus that you press up against are actually more for your good than you ever could have imagined and that Jesus is trustworthy and what he says is true? Could it be when you get to these spots in your life, my friends, please persevere with Jesus? Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? There were a ton of disciples, a ton of people following Jesus. They use that term loosely. (laughs) Almost everybody walked. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They heard the hard word. They saw people turning. They saw people saying, forget this Jesus. This can't be true. This is too harsh. This is intolerable. This is offensive. But there they were. It pressed them. And Jesus looks at them and says, you want to go? They say, no. Where else would we turn? You're the savior of the world. You're the only one who can save. You're the son of God. We're going to get into some weightier theology here this morning as we close. Wow. In four minutes, let's do it. There's reason to praise Jesus. Let Let me just show you something. If, like Peter, that's your confession as well, it's reason to praise. As I was saying this to you, as I, was, as I was speaking this and saying, Peter's words, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If that warmed your heart, it's reason to praise. It is reason to praise. Here's why. Jesus says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but he, there are some of you who do not believe. For, the, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. Jesus knew those who w- did believe, who didn't believe. He always knows who will believe and who won't believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by my Father, by the Father. If your heart is warmed 
when you hear Peter's response and it's your response, it's reason to praise God because the Father over everything in the world has drawn you to his Son. You're actually not holy enough to do that on your own. It's only his grace that your heart is warmed, that you are drawn and your eyes are opened. It's only his grace. It's impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father gives the grace to do so. Left to themselves, sinners prefer their sin. Conversion's always a work of grace. Look at verse 37 in chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Who will come to Jesus? Everybody the Father gives. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus because, you know what, I think Jesus is right and come to Jesus. That's not our own doing. That's the gift of God. Verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. One commentator, Leon Morris, Morris, said, the thought of the divine initiative, that's Jesus, that's God drawing sinners to himself. The thought of divine initiative and salvation and saving sinners is one of the great doctrines of this gospel, the gospel of John, and indeed of the Christian faith. People like to feel independent, don't you? They think that they can come or that they can come to Jesus entirely of their own volition. Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one at all can come unless the Father draws him. Now, at this point in my sermon, I literally had five points to talk about all the ways that we're in bondage to sin. (laughs) All the ways that spiritually we can't come to the Father without him warming our hearts and drawing us by his grace. But let me just summarize all of that by saying the natural person does not accept the things of God and cannot interpret the things of God. We come in hating and loving. We come into the world hating and loving and we love sin and we hate God. That's the way we come into the world and it's only by his grace that we are chained. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I believe the doctrine of election. That's the doctrinal word we're talking about right here. All the recovering Dutch Reformed people, their their ears are perked up right now. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that, listen to his words and look at the text. I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. There's an amen there, right? And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. If you're not believing that right now, you you, you actually sang it two songs ago. (laughs) If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Conversion's a work of grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's evidence of the divine initiative of God in your life. He drew you. He made a way for your depraved heart to come. See, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He gave you his life-giving spirit in order to bring about your salvation and continued uh, sanctification. So here's the reason that there is to praise. If your heart is drawn to Jesus this morning, hard words and all. You want to know him. You want to walk with him. You want to be his disciples. It's only out of sheer grace. A miracle happened in your life, and that's that God warmed your heart and drew you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He made a way for you through his son. And that's incredible. 
It's worthy of our lives. It's worthy of our lives. So to summarize, listen, I plead with you to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you believe in Jesus? Maybe you've never done it before. Maybe you've never given your life over to Jesus. He loves you more than you could know, and his ways are better than you could ever imagine. Believe in his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins. I plead with you to persevere with Jesus and allow his word to shape your worldview. Persevere. Press on. Get into the word. Get on your knees in prayer. And lastly, I plead with you to see that your ability to desire to declare Jesus as Lord is a miracle of grace to you from God that is worthy of a life of praise-filled response. I'm going to get the band to come on up. We're going to sing a closing song. I'm going to get our prayer team uh, to come uh, to different spots in the room, up front, in the back, up on the balcony. We'd love to pray with you. Our time is also up. (laughs) So I'm going to pray, and you'll be dismissed. If you need to get kids, if your stomach is growling, and those six Krispy Kremes I was talking about are like, ooh, you know what? That's good. You got to go, you got to go. You're welcome to stay for one final song, though, as well. So let me pray. You can receive prayer. You can sing along with us or have a wonderful, wonderful day. Let me pray. God, thank you for your grace, your new morning mercies every day. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your grace for me. I just, I resonate with the Apostle Paul who identifies himself as the chief of all sinners because I know my sinful heart more than anybody's sin. And yet you saved a wretch like me. God, you're good. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that we can trust in it and our lives can be transformed and changed and we can spend eternity with you. Thank you too that in the difficulties in this room, the hard sayings of your son Jesus that that are real struggles. Lord, I pray you would see these saints through. Help them persevere. Help them not be those false disciples who fall away, but those true disciples who cling to you, who devour your word and fall on their faces. Oh Lord, may we be a people who know you more and more and more and submit our lives to your word more and more and more and more. Help us, Lord, I pray. Minister to us, I ask, in Jesus' precious name, amen.